0: Tell it to the judge on Sunday, tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday, you can call him at who Hello and welcome to Torts Illustrated, episode 12? Yes, 12, I think. I'm your host, Marie. Wait, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here on Towards Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. And if you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to Towards Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law, from old England to today. Apologies for any dips in the sound quality, as I am recording from my bed, because I seem to have thrown my back out. Also, it has been forever, friends, and for that, I also deeply apologize. I have no excuse other than, you know, life. Lots of moving and shaking for your dear host here. I'm currently in a weekly show as well as a weekly improv class, and oh, you know, I do have to occasionally go to my actual legal job. In addition to all of that, I'm in the process of buying a condo and getting ready to move, so needless to say, life has been a little bit hectic on my end. Please bear with me, because I might miss another week or two in March. Um, I will be moving, and I'll be out of town for some weddings, but I will do my very best to stay up to date, and I promise you this is not me canceling this podcast. Maybe I'll do some smaller, less research-heavy episodes, and of course submit your questions to torts illustrated Podcast at gmail.com, because I will be answering some of them sometime soon. Okay, so now that all my excuses are out of the way, I present to you this week's topic, which would have been much more topical if I had actually recorded it on Valentine's Day week, Crimes of Passion. This is a topic we all know a little bit about, because who among us has not wanted to violently stab a loved one during an argument? No? Just me? Eh, you know what, I'm going to take that out and boast. What I meant was, we've all seen this play out on TV two characters are in the middle of a big fight, maybe, let's say, in the kitchen, and so there's a knife on the counter. Someone says something particularly cruel, and the other person just snaps, grabs that knife, and stabs them, and the next thing you know, cut to our murderer crying and, and looking at their bloody hands and trying to figure out what happened, and then, of course, burying their wife in the yard. The question is, What actual legal difference does this make, if any, versus a real planned out, cold-blooded murder? And will it help our killer that they did this in a moment of madness and not out of premeditated killer instinct? Well, because it's the law, it's a complicated answer. And because it's me, we're going to have to go back in time into history for this. But before we do, I think we've talked about this in the past, but it's possible I'm mixing up this podcast and my 8th grade mock trial students, so just in case, a quick primer on murder versus manslaughter. If I have covered it already, and you just don't care for it, skip ahead like a minute and a half. So murder is generally defined as intentionally causing the death of another person. Murder in the first is premeditated, meaning that you thought about it, you planned it out, and you killed someone. Murder in the second is all other killings with malice aforethought. So basically, you didn't plan it ahead of time, but when you got to the moment, you thought, fuck it, I am gonna straight up murder this person. I'm doing it now. There's also the felony murder rule, which a lot of people don't seem to know about, and it generally falls under first degree murder. Uh, what this means is that if someone got killed while you were committing a felony, you might not be the one that killed them, but if you were there, you know, felonying it up with your buddies, you can still be charged for murder. Now, where our crimes of passion come into play is probably gonna be more in the manslaughter realm. Although, as we'll learn, this certainly isn't cut and dry. Voluntary manslaughter is an intentional killing with no prior intent to kill, under circumstances that would cause a reasonable person to become mentally or emotionally disturbed. So it's pretty close to murder too, but the circumstances are a bit different. And involuntary manslaughter is our classic drunk driving death, a killing that occurs without any intent to kill, but some sort of intentional or reckless act that causes the death. So, you didn't intend to kill someone, but you did drive drunk or hit golf balls or throw bottles into a crowd of people, or criminally neglect, say, a child or an elderly person under your care. And that can all fall under manslaughter. Of course, with all of these, as it stands to reason, the person has to actually die, or else we have an attempted crime, which you can also be charged for. Now, different states and different counties split these categories up differently, but that's kind of the basic setup. If you're gonna murder, check the laws in your state first to see what kind of punishment you'll get, or just, you know, don't murder. Block the person's phone number, book a spa day. It's just not worth it. So, back to our history. As I've mentioned many times before, U.S. law is largely derived from the English system. So let's start back in jolly old England. Back in the 1700s, and I imagine for most of time before that, provocation was a much more accepted reason for killing. And in fact, provocation was a pretty strong defense to charges of murder, and was often enough to convert your murder charge down into a manslaughter charge. So you wouldn't get off scot-free, but you would be charged with the lesser crime. And there were many different types of provocation that could achieve this purpose, but perhaps the most common one, and one we'll discuss a lot today, was cheating wives. Englishmen in this era took cheating very, very seriously because not only was it an offense by the wife and a challenge to their sense of manhood, but they also considered it an offense against their property by the other man. This was considered not just an emotional hit, but essentially the most egregious form of theft a man could commit against another man. Because remember, women were property. Yay! Now, while we hope that women aren't considered property today, and that's not the reasoning behind it, the provocation defense wasn't repealed legislatively until 2010. And even past that, the courts have still kind of applied it. So there's a lot that's up in the air about whether this actually still exists. Of course. It was replaced by a similar loss of control provision, which allowed for a reduction in charges for a provoked crime, but that particular statute specifically excludes sexual infidelity as the type of trigger uh, that could reduce a charge from murder to manslaughter. The confusion happens because courts are still considering sexual infidelity as a form of provocation. A lot of cool stuff to talk about with that change and that disparity between the legislators and the courts. But we're not going to get into it too much today, because that change didn't occur until 2010, and today we are going to talk about the case of William Cranston, uh, known as the Canal Boat Killer, and he was tried in 2009. So let's take you back to 2009 on a foggy English day in September. Cranston K. Morton and Paul Wilkins met up for a few drinks at a local pub before heading back to a narrow canal boat on the Grand Union Canal in Stoke Hammond to keep drinking and to smoke some pot. Cranson and Morton were dating, and there's actually a history of infidelity here. Apparently, a few years earlier, he had gone out to walk the dog and he came back to find her having sex with another man in the house. But they decided to stay together and went out with their mutual friend, Paul, this night. Cranston fell asleep, and predictably when he woke up, he found Morton and Wilkins having sex. In an alleged fit of rage, he stabbed them both to death. Now, Cranston claims that he barely remembers the stabbing. He said in a statement, I can't remember picking up the knife. When Paul came towards me, I just sort of lashed out to find what was going on. Literally five seconds later, they were both on the floor bleeding to death, and I've got a knife in my hand. And to his credit, he did try to save them, so he called 999 immediately and gave CPR and mouth-to-mouth, which is really not what you do in a stabbing wound, but they both died either way. Now, in an interesting and sad additional detail, apparently the sofa where the pair were caught having sex was the same sofa that Cranson was sitting on with his son a year earlier, when his baby son Kevin died. In court, his lawyers and his psychiatrists argued that this unfortunate coincidence, combined with the betrayal of the infidelity, was basically the straw that broke the camel's back, and it was enough that he acted completely out of himself, without any forethought and in the height of passion. Of course, as I'm sure most of you understand, in these cases, passion doesn't necessarily mean romantic passion. It means raised emotions. So prosecutors argued basically exactly what the law would be changed to a year later, that even in the case of infidelity, even if it happens right in front of you, that doesn't mitigate the fact that Cranson deliberately stabbed two people. The jury did, though, hold with historical precedent, and they lowered the charge to manslaughter. The judge at his sentencing also clearly showed the difficulty in cases like this that it's easy enough to understand how this man snapped under the circumstances and that his remorse is evident. The judge took into account that he tried to administer first aid after he you know, stabbed them. He called the police, and when the police arrived, he immediately turned himself in as the murderer. Apparently, he was just completely beside himself, and the judge really struggled with this. But in the end, he did stab two people, and that's a serious crime. So the judge sentenced him to 12 years. Perhaps indicating the change in attitude that led to the legal change a year later, Cranston expresses deep regret about his crime, and he really doesn't see this as, you know, something that was okay, like his Victorian counterparts. He was interviewed after his trial, and he said, I've killed two people. And over what? I didn't even know what I had done to start with. I can't explain why. I think about it every day. I killed the woman that I love and a friend who I thought a lot of and trusted. I feel terrible. Now, like in England, crimes of passion aren't really allowed in the US like people tend to think. I think that there's this impression that if you kill in one of these, you know, rages caused by provocation, that you might get off completely. Generally, they're just used like a mitigating circumstance to reduce charges and sentencing. As always, it differs by state, and as always, in the early years of our history, say roughly 1776 until the mid-1900s, it was often sort of allowed, in the sense that even though this wasn't allowed by law and wouldn't get you off completely from a charge, many of these killings were kind of swept under the rug, and so they were never actually brought to trial. Side note, I'm talking mostly about men killing their wives, or killing the men that sleep with their wives, and this isn't part of my diabolical feminist agenda, though I do have one of those. It's just statistically more likely. Only about 5% of men are killed by a significant other, while it's much more common for women. The statistic you see a lot is 1 in 4. That's been debated, but somewhere between 1 in 4 and 1 in 10 is probably correct, which is a lot more than 5%. What men do have to worry about throughout history is being killed by a man whose wife they slept with. And to be fair to men here, there is also an imbalance where women tend to get lighter sentences for crimes of passion than men. Why this happens, I don't know. It may be out of society's perception that women are less able to control their emotions, and so juries, without meaning to consider this when they're you know, sitting in the room debating. Lorena Bobbitt, for example, was found not guilty because she had an irresistible impulse to wound her husband based on his behavior. For those of you not old enough to remember the case burned into the minds of 90s kids, Lorena Bobbitt didn't actually kill her husband, but she did cut off his penis and throw it into a field. Don't worry, guys, who are all cringing, it got reattached, and he went on to do porn, so he's fine. But weird side note about defalitation aside... Let's talk about some interesting crimes of passion in the US. And we're going to start with one that kind of started a whole new defense to these types of crimes, which is the 1859 Daniel Sickles Trial. This case has everything. It's got celebrities, it's got high society, it's got wacky battles in public squares, and it's making me feel like maybe I should go back into more of these old-timey cases. Because they are bonkers, I mean, weird stuff happens. So. Prepare yourself for maybe a few more of these you know, 1700s to 1800s cases in the future, because I love this one. So Major General Daniel Sickles was a prominent Civil War recruiter and general from a wealthy family. He actually helped create the awesomely named Excelsior Brigade in the Army of the Potomac. He was eventually an amputee and a Medal of Honor recipient, a congressman, a member of the New York Senate, a foreign minister to Spain. He was also, apparently, a bit of a crappy dude, and he had a penchant for causing scandals. So, in 1852, a 33-year-old Sickles married 15-year-old Teresa Baggioli, a beautiful and well-educated girl who did not deserve to be married to a piece of trash like Sickles. Her father was his music teacher, and apparently he had known her for her entire life, which is creepy. And by all accounts, they were very in love, but that didn't mean that Sickles was a good husband to her at all. Sickles, you see, was a man about town, a bit of a dandy, and his antics were so open that he was actually censured by the New York Senate for seeking out prostitutes. He even took a well-known prostitute, Fanny White, to England to meet the Queen, instead of taking his pregnant wife with him. So, no one could really blame Teresa for going out and finding some strange of her own, and that's exactly what she did, in the form of Philip Barton Key II, the district attorney of DC and the son of famed composer and the bane of Marching Man Kid's existence, Francis Scott Key. Apparently, unlike her husband, Key was quite the guy. He was described by the society maven of the times as the handsomest man in all of Washington society. He was also a close friend of her husband's, and her husband had actually used his influence to get him his job as district attorney. So not super discreet, Teresa. Their affair began apparently by innocent chance meetings and conversations, but it eventually progressed to a full-blown romantic and sexual affair. Now they certainly tried to keep it under wraps, and Key even rented a house in a poor neighborhood where they would meet to avoid being caught by all of their rich friends. But Washington High Society at the time was about as watertight as a sieve when it came to secrets, and it was pretty much common knowledge to everyone except Daniel Sickle, who was completely unaware. Now, that all ended when someone who probably really regretted their meddling sent Daniel Sickle an anonymous letter, cleverly stating, I do assure you, Key has as much use of your wife as you do. I don't know why people of this time loved to send anonymous letters and notes it happens in hamilton it happens in you know the mid 1800s for sickle stop sending these things they only lead to bad things and that's exactly what happened here teresa eventually confessed everything to her husband when questioned and sickle's forced her to sign what was apparently a very explicit confession of all of her activities with key So he is, at this point, totally riled up. He is very upset that everyone, including this anonymous note writer, seems to know about this affair except for him. And he is ready to crack some skulls. Now, the next day, no more to the wise, Key came by to give the secret signal to Teresa for one of their clandestine meetups. Apparently, he would stand in the square across from their house, and he would wave a scarf in the air, which is very subtle, and she would see it come out and they would, you know, go do their thing. Of course, this time it wasn't Teresa that saw the signal. It was Daniel Sickles. He saw the signal, he was enraged, and he was suddenly ready to rumble. Now I want you to pause this for a second and go look up a picture of Daniel Sickles and one of Key, because they are such fancy old-timey gentlemen. They've got those thick, curled-end mustaches, they've got ascots and those very kind of serious faces you had because photographs took forever. And it makes what I'm about to say so much more darkly hilarious because yes, someone dies and that's horrible, but honestly, this reads like Will Smith's interpretation of the Civil War era in Wild Wild West. It is crazy. You back? Cool. So Sickles, enraged by Key's handkerchief wave, arms himself with several pistols, and then in broad daylight in a public square, ran at Key, yelling, Key, you scoundrel, you have dishonored my home, you must die. He then fired a pistol at him, but he only managed to hit him kind of glancingly in the hand. So, like an action star, threw his derringer to the ground and began to physically fight Key. So they are grappling on the ground in a public square, and apparently gathering quite a crowd. Then he drew another pistol, to which Key responded by throwing the only weapon available to him on his person, a pair of opera glasses. <laughs> I i know that somebody died, but this is just... Anyway, I'm going to try and be professional. So Sickles fired again, and he hit Key square in the crotch, which... Really, he could have stopped there, because God knows Key was not sleeping with anyone's wife after that. But for good measure, he stood up and shot him again in the chest, and he finally walked away, leaving Key to the onlookers, who dragged him to a nearby house where he quickly died. Now, bonkers story aside, Sickles, after this crime, had the greatest defense possible available to him. Tons and tons of money. We like to hope that nowadays that's a little less of an influencing factor, although I think that's more of a hope than a reality, but at the time, that was the best possible thing you could have on your side. Sickles wasn't exactly treated like a regular prisoner. He was visited by members of high society and by politicians, and he even received a lovely note from President James Buchanan widely acknowledged until recently as the worst president in American history. He was even allowed to keep his own personal weapon on him in jail. But perhaps most importantly, he was able to hire a crack team of lawyers who put together his defense, including a future secretary of war and various other prominent men. You see, adultery itself wasn't a defense to murder at the time, so... There was no way of getting him off in the clear that way, and the crime of passion defense won't really get him out of serving time, it would only reduce his charge. So his attorneys got creative. They argued that his wife's infidelity had actually driven him temporarily insane, and that he couldn't be held accountable for his crime. Now, although Teresa's confession wasn't allowed in court, the written one that he had made her write out when he first found out, his lawyers very cleverly released it to the press, and it was published all over DC. So all of society had read this explicit confession of everything that Key and his wife had done together, and it really helped garner sympathy and get jurors on his side. Apparently this letter, which I have not read and could not find online, really turned Key into the villain in the public eye for defiling a high-born lady, and turned Teresa herself into sort of a villain as well, because she was a participant. And Sickles was hailed as a hero for saving the women of Washington society from a knave-like key. I mean, he killed the man in public, and he's being heralded for the crime. In fact, apparently people were more upset with him that he stayed with his wife than the straight-up movie murder that he committed. So, Key was found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity caused by his wife's infidelity. Now, this was a whole new spin on the idea of a crime of passion, and this pioneering defense became a commonly used defense throughout the 18 and early 1900s, especially in the 40s and 50s, where this came up over and over again. And it wasn't just used in cases of adultery, even for things like uh, the assassination of attempt on President Garfield. Um, He was actually killed, right? I was an American history major, guys, I should know that. But in 1881, someone fired at him and used this temporary insanity defense. Although temporary insanity in general has fallen out of favor as a defense in favor of this manslaughter reduction, this actually came to be known specifically talking about infidelity as dementia Americana, a particularly American form of madness that causes men to kill their wives or the man who has, according to the husband, violated the sanctity of their home. I encourage you all to go look up the case of Harry Thaw, which we don't have time for today, and maybe we'll do at some later date, but I'm not going to start another series now. But that's the case that this name comes from. So, to finish us off this week, I will leave you with a taste of that case. In the eloquent, if somewhat misguided, words of the defense attorney in that case, that really summed up, the feelings of people throughout history towards this adultery defense. Ah, gentlemen, if you desire a name for this species of insanity, let me suggest it. Call it Dementia Americana. That is the species of insanity which makes every American man believe his home to be sacred. That is the species of insanity which makes him believe the honor of his daughter is sacred. That is the species of insanity which makes him believe the honor of his wife is sacred. That is the species of insanity which makes him believe that whosoever invades his home, that whosoever stains the virtue of his threshold, has violated the highest of human laws, and must appeal to the mercy of God, if mercy there be for him anywhere in the universe. And thus, folks, we pack a whole lot of castle doctrine and weird, uncomfortable gender roles into one paragraph. That's it for this week. If you've got cases you want to hear about or just want to tell me this podcast is terrible or yell at me for missing two weeks, you can email me at tortsillustratedpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated, and I'm your host, Marie, asking that when you kill all the lawyers... Please spare me.